Hello, welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osban, here with my friend Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Yuma, daf pei gimel, page 83. Now, just want to remind everybody again that our CM is quickly approaching. Um, we pushed the CM to a Sunday for obvious reasons, even though we really finished Masachet Yuma in the beginning, well, in the middle of next week, and we'll be starting uh, Sukkah, God willing. Uh, but if you've not registered yet to join us, or if you would like to share some Torah, please let us know as soon as you can. Um, straight to this daf, which is a really long daf and is actually a pretty famous daf. There's a lot of passages here that are typically quoted uh, in a variety of contexts. Uh, I'm going to start with this whole discussion here of right? the idea that we feed a person, a person who's really ill and maybe needs food on Yom Kippur because of some type of sakanat nefesh, or pikuach nefesh, right, that their life is in danger, we sort of feed them according to the advice of experts. And most of the Mepharshim explain, the commentaries explain, that this would be medical experts, right? I'm a Rabbi Yanai, but Rabbi Yanai comes and says, Rabbi Yanai comes with an interesting case. And he says, let's say you have a person who's sick and they say, I must eat or I'm going to die. But the doctor comes and says, nope, they don't need to eat, right? Who do we listen to? We actually listen to the sick person. My taima, what's the reason? So they quote your pasuk from Mishle, chapter 14, verse 10, which basically says the heart knows the bitterness of its soul, meaning the sick person really understands how sick or how not well they're feeling. Um, and the doctor may not totally understand it. So I obviously, as a physician, drawn to this passage. I think one could use it in many modern contexts, right? Like the idea now about sort of uh, that medicine is supposed to be much more of a partnership, listening to patients. And I was very, very ahead of his time because that's really what he's basically saying here is that we listen to the sick person and not necessarily to the doctor. Now the Gemara says, Pshita. it's obvious, right? Of course, a person knows himself better than the doctor knows him. Again, very progressive in my mind. Mahu Detema. So what was the reason why they put it in there? Because a person could say, because the person could say a person is more certain. In other words, the doctor is always right, right? That's that's what a person would say. And so this pasuk, this line of reasoning comes to teach us basically, no, that's not always true. We really have to make sure to listen. And when a person really says they think they're dying, they're in pain or something's not right, we have to really take that really seriously. Now they're going to do the flip of this case. Let's say the doctor says that the person needs food and the sick person says, no, I don't need food. Show me la rofe. So in that case, we're going to listen to the doctor. My time, what's the reason? Why? Because maybe the sick person is confused and doesn't really understand how ill they are and sort of can't really, uh, you know, evaluate the, the situation well. They don't understand that they really need food. And therefore, we say that they they actually, they must eat. Then the Gemara goes on, Tanan. Right now, they're going to quote a bright, a Mishnah. Right? So now we have the case of, okay, you have a sick person. Again, the same thing. We feed him according to the medical experts. So here we have a different opinion. It says, according to the experts, less, yes. But according to his own opinion, no. Alpi bakiin in, alpi bakiachat lo. 
right? Also, we say that it has to be according to several experts, right? The plural here is very important. Um, it's experts, not expert. But on one expert, uh, we don't necessarily do it. And then the Gemara is going to spend a very long time sort of trying to unpack this particular Mishnah, try to figure it out with the opinion of, uh, of, uh, of Rabbi Yanai. Um, but again, they sort of conclude at the end, right? Mar Bar Rav Ashi Amar, Mar Rav Bar Ashi comes, I skipped down a little bit. Any place where a, person, a sick person says, I must eat. Even if like a hundred experts come and say, you don't need to eat. We listen to the sick person. And again, quoting the same pasuk that we really, the, the, the heart knows the, the bitterness of the soul. The sick person uh, really knows um, really knows himself. And then they finally come to a third case, right? Right? What if there are no experts around? Right? What do you do in that particular case? So the Mishnah says, again, you're going to listen to that person. Okay? Um, and then they, you know, sort of try to unpack that again. Like, what exactly does that case mean? And again, in that particular case, they again quote this pasuk with the idea that the sick person really knows. So I think what the Gemara here is really responding to is, yes, the Mishnah is saying that we, you know, our original Mishnah, the Mishnah that appears in the Perak, says that we need to listen, you know, there, an expert opinion needs to be weighed in. And yet, at the same time, um, you know, the Gemara sort of comes to be like, well, that's true, but ultimately, we always listen to the sick person. And they sort of go through a variety of other tenetic statements to show, like, why that may or may not be true and how that actually plays itself. But ultimately, they keep coming back to the same Pasuk and Mishle that really says the sick person knows himself better. I found this passage to be interesting because certainly, let's say, in more um, right-wing communities, there has become such a culture of sort of always asking the rabbi about everything. And I'm not trying to downplay it. Like, you know, Yom Kippur is Yom Kippur. Um, and, it, and it's serious if you need to eat. But it's very clear from these passages, there's almost an element of common sense. If you're a person who feels that something bad is going to happen to them on Yom Kippur because you're sick, you should go ahead and eat. And this reminded me when I was pregnant, the first time I got morning sickness was at 3 a.m. on Yom Kippur night. And I was like, <laughs> of vomiting. course, yes, I was like vomiting all night. And there's a couple of listeners, you know, people listen to this podcast who may remember the story. I didn't show up to show to like 11 a.m. the next morning. No, it was like six weeks pregnant. And it was like one of those things. I think it was obvious to every woman in the women's section what was going on. But, you know, that's a whole other discussion why we don't share these things at the beginning. Uh, <laughs> but I look terrible. But I was like, I was stupid. I did something stupid. Like I'm saying that out loud and owning it. You know, obviously there's no rabbi to ask at 3 a.m. But my husband and I were, you know, fairly newly married. I think also because of youth, you know, I was a medical, I just started medical school. And like, I fasted, it was done. And I actually almost ended up in the hospital afterwards. I could not keep food down for a few days afterwards. And it was bad. And like, I'm reading this passage, thinking about what I did. And I'm thinking about what modern life is today in certain communities and its relationships to rabbis. I don't know, this passage really gives a sense of autonomy for the person. There's no culture here of like having to ask the rabbi to make it okay. 
it's really saying like, if you feel you need to eat, of course you should go ahead and eat. Like, what do you need to ask a rabbi to figure that out? And not only that, it's not even a rabbi. It really says it's a medical expert. And that also brings up a tension that I see. And I, I, I think I may feel this more as a doctor, you know, this idea of sort of asking rabbis some of these medical questions and not going to a doctor or that it's not enough that a doctor told you this. So the other piece of this that I'll end with is when I was pregnant with my youngest, so I was going to be about 23 weeks pregnant over Yom Kippur. And I saw this change happen from my oldest to my youngest, and they're, they're fairly far apart from each other. It's about 14 years that when I was pregnant with the, my youngest, my OB, was, who's Jewish, um, was very, very adamant that I absolutely may not fast on Yom Kippur. She was adamant. She said, you're 23 weeks pregnant. If something happened, it would be very bad. You absolutely may not fast. And, you know, I'm also going to own. I kind of asked around a few people. I was sort of shocked by this. Um, spoke to a rabbi. It was like, look, if three doctors are telling you you can't fast, you can't fast. But just this whole dynamic and interplay that we have between personal autonomy, who's the expert that we go to? Is it a doctor? Is it a rabbi? Um, and then sort of seeing this passage in the Gemara, which I actually think is much more common sense and forward thinking than I think how we actually do halacha today. So that was my observation about this beginning piece here. So this is one of those really interesting Israel-America divides. I don't know if it's fair to say Israel-Diaspora divides because I don't know enough about how fasting is treated in the rest of the world besides America. But I've definitely observed that there are that the medical personnel and the rabbinic personnel in Israel are much faster to, much quicker, pardon me, much quicker to tell um, those in the state of pregnancy, nursing, you know, any of the above, um, you know, break, whether to break your fast or to to drink shiur and kippur or whatever it's going to be, they're just quicker to do it. So that the shock of, or you said you were shocked that you were told to, you that you weren't allowed to fast. I feel like well, in Israel, it's almost like a given. Now, I also know plenty of women who say, who's going to tell me to fast, right? Like where they feel that there's, it's just a wrong medical instruction. I find that the distinct, the distinction here uh, or that you talk about your data between asking the rabbi versus asking the doctor, it makes, it always makes me a little bit wild when people um, take this fasting question to the rabbis without any medical consultancy. Right. When when, you know, talk to the doctor, if the doctor says you can fast, you don't have to, you know, or you shouldn't fast, but you can if you really want to. Then you're in a gray zone. Then talk to the halachic authority. But if you're talking about, you know, long before that point, you know, the point of what is the medical medically sound practice to do for this woman with this pregnancy, which is very individual, because some people I know can fast and run a marathon and some people are you know laid up for days before and after you know it's not it's not a simple thing for some people fasting is a really big deal i know that when i was pregnant i was told to drink shiurim um so that i wouldn't get dehydrated because i was you know i was uh there was nothing medically at risk in the pregnancy but um it was you know hard hardly hard come by is that how you say it um and the idea that anything could go wrong from fasting like the doctor said to me, the doctor said to me, this is not worth it. She said to me, honestly, and this is a little bit disturbing perhaps for some, she said, if you were 25, she would tell me to fast. Meaning that's how fine I was physically, but God forbid something would have gone wrong. Nobody was willing, no, no medical person wanted to take the responsibility for this. Now, 
she is a from woman. She has five children of her own. She may well have fasted herself on Yom Kippur. I don't know. Um, I think these nuances become really important. And it's one of those, I would say, very live halachic areas, in part because, you know, we have more medical knowledge than we used to. There are different practices. There are different people reacting differently. Um, you know, and your point also, your Dana, about, you know, the autonomy. My tricky part, I think, is always like, I don't know if I would know when I got to the point that I would need to break a fast. I'm not sure that I would trust myself because, I don't know, you always feel a little bit, you know, less less yourself. At what point do you say, okay, now this is really bad? Right. And the Gemara here is really like you can trust the patient. Um, all right. So now we're going to move on to two sort of really famous this that Mishnah, which Anne, you're going to read, and this whole concept of this illness called Bomos. Um, and if you read or see anything about Bomos or see an article, this is really the daft that gets quoted. Um, but the Mishnah itself that sort of gets into that uh, also has some very famous passages there as, as well. So, Anne, I'll Indeed. hand it over to you for the Mishnah. Okay. Misha Chazo Bomos, somebody who is seized by a Bomos. Now, bulmus in you know is translated as bulmus. That's just what it is, um, and there's no real. I don't know of any actual translation. It does seem to come from the same Greek word that leads to the word of bulimia, meaning that there's something unhealthy in this hunger, but that has really nothing to do with bulimia, the the illness. Um, it's just a etymological connection. Um, so Misha so bulmus, somebody who is seized by this, some kind of profound hunger. You give him what he asks for, even if they are non-kosher tame kinds of foods. Until he kind of comes back to himself, right? Until you can see from his eyes that he's recovering. Now, this is even a more extreme case, or this is where you actually have some sense of cause, right? Somebody who is bit by a mad dog, Shalonida, don't don't feed him from the lobe of the dog's liver, if that's what he decides he's asking for. Um, this is, you know, if somebody is, I guess it's rabies, right? Yadina, this should be, this yeah, is the question, right? right? It sounds like rabies, yes. It sounds like rabies. And if rabies is affecting you and affecting your mind, you know, the parameters of how far you're going to listen to this person in his raving is a little bit more limited than the unknown bulmus altogether. Um, at, there was a time where they thought that the lobe of the dog's liver was considered to be a remedy that would fix it, but the rabbis themselves said no way, which I think is also interesting. Like they're paying attention to the medical side of things, right? To the to what works and what doesn't work. They're, you know, they're not cloistered. They're paying attention to what is known in the in the world at large. And sometimes they buy it and they use it and sometimes they do not. Rav Matib Kherish says, yes, give it to him, because he thought that it was effective, even though the, the majority of the rabbis did not think so. Va'od Amar Rav Matib Kharash. So once we're talking about him, we're going to say what else we, he has to say. Ha'choshish b'grono matilin sam b'toch piv b'shabbat. So somebody who's got a pain in his throat, you could place that medicine inside of his mouth on Shabbat, you know, even though usually we wouldn't give medicine on Shabbat. Because, which we talked about extensively when we were learning Masachat Shabbat, because you're not sure whether this is a, this is what we call Safek Nefashot. It's a case of maybe there's something life-threatening going on, and maybe there isn't. It's not a given that you should, you know, do whatever needs to be done. But this thing of giving medicine because he's complaining about pain, 
seems to be um, enough, at least according to Rav Mati ben Kharash, to, to give him the medicine. And this is truly a you know general principle that somebody who is in a uh, an uncertainty whether they are having a life threatening situation or not, we err on the side of caution for the sake of the life, not for the sake of Shabbat. Right? That's that's exactly that equation that we were talking about the other day. Now. We are the Mishnah moves further afield, but it's still talking about uh, what happens when you have an, an immediate medical need on Shabbat. Um, so, or Yom Kippur for that matter, it's no longer about hunger. We're talking about somebody who was under a rock slide, some kind of avalanche. Safek husham, safek inosham. You're not sure if the guy is there at all. This is a little bit too much of a, of a what do you call it, Yordana? A nister? You're not sure if he's there or if he's not there. This is, I would say, Yardina, right now in our in our current events, it's a little bit too much of a nationistar in terms of where people are not sure when you've got literally, you know. Uh, here it talks about a mapula, a rock slide. Nowadays, of course, we're talking about the building in Surfside, Florida. Um, we hope everybody, we hope there's still hope for people to come out okay. Um so, but that's exactly the question here, right? You're not sure whether they're alive or dead, and then what are you going to do about it? Suffix high, suffix mate, or you know he's there, but you're not sure if he's alive. Suffix goy, suffix Israel, you know that somebody's under there, but you don't know if the person is Jewish or not Jewish. And as I say, this is really a little bit too close for comfort. It's really exactly the case that we're talking about, the cases that we're talking about. You just do everything you possibly can to get that pile off of. The person who is there, the person that you don't know if it's a Jew or a non-Jew or alive or not alive, or even if anybody is even really under there, you do everything you can to make sure that you could get the person out alive if you actually could. If you find the person is indeed alive, then you do everything you can to, to help them, right? And if you discover that somebody is in fact there but has did not make it through alive, then you leave him there till the end of Shabbat. Right, meaning you don't leave him there forever. You leave him there till the end of Shabbat, and then you continue to, you know, extricate him from the pile um, after Shabbat. But that's when you have really certain information. Everything else about this is all about the suffix, right? All about the question of what is the status, and the answer is no. We're going to we're going to prioritize life, or even just the possibility of life, and we're going to do everything that it takes. So this Mishnah draws the lines, I would say, pretty firmly. Um, to the listen to the person who tells you that they've got extreme hunger, you know, don't use medical remedies that don't work, you know, like um home remedies that don't work. And but but the bottom line is you do whatever it takes to make sure that the people can make it through, you know, if if in fact they can. Right. And this is really the Mishnah that's always cited. Um, you know, when we talk about Bikuach Nefesh. If you if you go to any shear about Bikuach Nefesh, this 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 Mishnah would should get discussed. <laughs> right. And if it's not explicitly discussed, like they don't say Yoma, there's they still know about this. Like this is the it's part of the foundational discussion of it. Right. So now then the Gemara gets into, you know, all these discussions about what Bulmos is exactly. Um, and there's, you know, a, a very strange story at the end about sort of how uh, with Rebbe Mayer. Um, and uh, Ann and I were, you know, we were prepping this. We were like, I don't know, if we had a little bit more time, we could we could understand this story uh, a little bit more. 
Um, but essentially the story, and it, it starts with, you know, they go through all these examples of people who had bulmos, what food they were fed, um, and things like this. Um, but, you know, they start with this story about Rabbi Mayer, Rabbi Yehuda, and Rabbi Yossi, who are walking together. Um, and the story doesn't have to do with bulmos at all. It just has to do with <laughs> something totally different. But the important point about the story is, is that Rabbi Mayer had this habit of sort of analyzing people's names um, and then sort of understanding something about their, their names. And they stayed at this innkeeper's house where his name was Kidor, and he related it to this Pasuk in Devarim in chapter 32, verse 20. Um, and, you know, he didn't leave his money. Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Yossi did leave his money. So the first question I have in this story is, if they saw that Rabbi Mayer didn't leave his money, you know, why didn't Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Yossi also not leave their money? That piece is kind of bizarre. Um, and, you know, the then there's this whole thing that the innkeeper has a dream. His father appears to him, tells him to go steal the money. And Rabbi Mayer again keeps guarding his money. And then finally, the innkeeper steals the money, claims to Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Yossi. He doesn't really know uh, what the, you know, uh, he didn't know what they were talking about, that they left money for him. And then finally, the wife, sort of the innkeeper's wife confesses, no, yes, he has your money. So he has to give the money back and he kills his wife. And then finally, Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Yossi... Wait, wait, you have to stop. That's a crazy upshot of the story. Like, Oh, yeah, I'm just just giving the highlights of what's so crazy about the story. Okay, because discuss in a second. Yeah. No, but no, I understand. But I just mean like even that that ending or whatever. It's not the ending, but right. Like, and then he kills his wife. Like, I'm sorry, what? He what? Right. Because of right. this, what? Right. And then Rabbi Mayer comes. Then they say to Rabbi Mayer at the end, they're like, "Why didn't you tell us that this guy was bad?" And so then Rabbi Mayer says something like very, very weird, where he basically just says, "You know, he's like, oh, he's like, cause like, I'm not gonna be. What is, how does he say it here? He says." They say, I'm relayed. So they say to Rabbi Mayer, Rabbi Yudin, Rabbi Yossi, I'm Milo, I'm Artelan Mar. Why didn't you tell us about this guy? So he says, I'm Relulu, I'm Aita, I'm Riyana Chashasha, Achzuke Mi Amri. So he says, I should be suspicious, but am I going to say he's absolutely wicked? So this whole story, and I wish I had more time to think about it, and maybe I'll probably think about it after we record this, is just totally bizarre. Like, it's not clear why it appears on this page. Right. Well, they were talking more before about people were almost. So it's like just giving us like a travel story. Um, So that's kind of weird. The thing about killing the wife is crazy, but I think it's sort of trying to show us how bad this innkeeper really was. He was really a bad guy. But the piece about Rabbi Mayer is what's most fascinating to me. You know, here he suspected something, but he was not willing to share it. And again, this stuff to me is like, I'm really thinking about things in very modern terms. You know, I think this is something that we talk a lot about. Like there's a whole thing now, much more in sort of like the Me Too movement or when it comes to abuse or things like that. Not so much about elements of stealing, but like what is one's obligation to share information? So one could argue here, yeah, Robbie Mayer didn't have any hard information. So that's why he didn't share. He didn't know the guy stole so he didn't share it. This was based on his analysis of a name. But yet at the same, and he's not criticized Robbie Mayer for what he did. The Gemara sort of moves on. So in a way, I think they silently agree with him. But it's, I don't know, I find it be, to be peculiar behavior. Why did he let Robbie Uden and Robbie O.C. leave the money and Robbie Mayer doesn't? I, I, just this whole story is so bizarre to me. Um, a number of, we'll call them Sipurayagada, right? These kind of whole from beginning, middle, end kind of stories 
throughout Shas, and they are challenging. They deserve a you know a full podcast on unto themselves to unpack them properly. And of course, here we are in Dafyomi, where we always feel like, ooh, I want to go and unpack that properly. Um, I think that this is one of those deep, you know, where a lot of it makes, you know, a lot of it, you could read the narrative and it's fine. But then to sit back and say, well, what, is he, what does it all mean? And again, like the, the detail that, that caught me, you know, I think twice even, you know, this thing of he's got, they saw the lentils on his mustache. Now, I understand how that was a relevant detail in the plot line of this story. But on the other hand, there's something just kind of, I don't know, like you could imagine it in a in a skit, right? Like, and then there were lentils on his mustache, right? As opposed to it being, I don't know. I, I, it seems to me that this is the kind of thing where if we did have the time to stand on a packet, we would come to a, a much more profound understanding of what's going on. And I regret that we can't. Yeah, Not so today, I, anyway. I, we're going to finish here, but I, I, I feel a little bad because I feel like we sort of just like raised the issues with the story. But we don't have anything great to say about. Maybe you know, somebody will talk about it at the Seum. Maybe some. This is a good thing for someone to talk about at the Seum, or if someone wants to share something, uh, you know, with us on our Facebook page or email us. So with that, we'll end. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Robin E. Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAF on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Thank you.